Now we're going to jump right back into our message series. If you have a Bible at home, go ahead and grab it. Head to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to camp out in verses 11 and 12 today. So just, just two verses. Um, and if you're new here, this is what we often do, by the way. We, we just kind of go through books of the Bible, oftentimes, verse by verse. We just kind of break it apart, and then we, we digest it together. We try to apply it to our lives, right? Because we want to be doers of the word, as James says, not just hearers of the word. So we are in a series called Hope in Exile through the first letter of Peter. Peter, our author, uh, was one of the 12, one of the disciples of Jesus, spent uh, several years with Jesus himself, and he's writing this letter to a group of churches in ancient Asia Minor. That's uh, modern-day uh, Turkey. And these Christians that Peter is writing to were suffering massively, right? They were, they were being persecuted. They were marginalized in their culture. They were made fun of. They were called names. They were even brutally killed because of their faith in Jesus, right? They were, they were just kind of strange in their culture. Their, their culture didn't get them as Christians, and they suffered a great deal as a result of that. And Peter is writing them to give them a proper and appropriate perspective in their pain, in their exile, as they're being marginalized, so that they would have hope, so that these Christians would learn how to have hope in the most difficult of circumstances. Now, in their, in their day, much like our day, when uh, there, there just seems like there's all this pain and chaos swirling around us, uh, it's really easy to just kind of get disoriented and to forget who we are and what our purpose is. All you have to do is look around the state of our nation, our country right now, and there's just this weird mixture of like uh, fear and anxiety over uh, the, this virus that's just kind of spread throughout the world. And, and then on the other side, you got, got kind of all this, this sadness and even pent up anger and rage over systemic racism in our culture. And I feel like Christians right now are just kind of caught in the middle, like what is our role? What, what is our role in all of this chaos that's happening right now? So there, there's one question that I hope that we can answer together this morning as we dig into 1 Peter. And the question is this, how can one person make a difference in the world? Like, is, is that even possible? Can, can one person actually make a difference in the world? Like, the, we seems like, man, the problems that we have in our culture right now are so immense Everything seems the, so, so daunting. I think it's easy for a lot of us just to get to a place of despondency or despair or complacency and just kind of give up. Like, man, there, there's nothing that I can do personally that will actually make a difference. So I'm just, man, as a Christian, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to wait for Jesus to come back. Uh, just let the world burn. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. I'm going to wait for him to come back and rescue me from all of this mess. And is, is that the right response? For the Christian, and I think Peter speaks right into that dilemma in this letter. What, what is our role? As followers of Jesus, what is our role in this world? Now, last week we left off in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where Peter pointed us to our identity. And what he's going to do now is he's going to spend the rest of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 challenging us to live out this new identity in Jesus in several key areas of our lives. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to tackle uh, what it looks like for us to live out our faith in, in civic life. What, what does it look like for us to, how should we respond to uh, governing authorities? 
as, as Christians. We're going to look at how to live out our faith within our professional life. We're going to look at uh, the home, marriage life, the church life. But today we're actually going to start with how our identity, our new identity as followers of Christ should uh, really play out in our personal lives, in our interaction with sin and the world around us. So let's, let's start by going back to where we finished off uh, last week, our identity in Christ, starting in verse 9 of chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the Apostle Peter writing. He says, but you are a chosen race. So he's saying, hey, Christians, you're, you're suffering. Maybe you're feeling hopeless. So I want to remind you of what your actual identity is. This is how God sees you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Now watch this. Who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, one of the consistent themes throughout the entire New Testament is this imagery of light and darkness. Peter goes, listen, Christian, you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's prized possession. So don't forget that God has called you out of darkness and placed you into his kingdom of marvelous light. Now, what Peter means by that is that, listen, we were once, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whatever you are, we were all once in darkness. Now, he's talking about a spiritual darkness here, right? Before Jesus redeemed us, before Jesus opened our eyes to see spiritual truths, before he opened our hearts, before he placed his spirit inside of us, you know, we all walked in darkness. We were people of darkness, and our lives reflected that darkness. I want you to listen to what Jesus himself says in John 12. This will be on the screen for you. This is Jesus talking. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in what? May not remain in the darkness. This is the way the apostle Paul puts it as he writes to a church in a city called Ephesus. Paul says this, for you were once darkness. Now notice he doesn't say you once walked in darkness. He actually says, you weren't, were darkness. Like, that's who you were at your core. That was your DNA. That was your identity. You were darkness. But now, Christian, you are light in the Lord. So what's our response, Paul? Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now here's the message from, from Peter, from Paul, and from Jesus himself Listen, we were all once in the darkness. We were incapable of even perceiving spiritual truth or living and walking in the light. It was absolutely impossible for us. And Peter is saying, Christian, that was your identity. That's who you were. But now you have been placed by Jesus into the kingdom of light. You are a chosen race, royal priesthood, you're a child of the light, and the time has come for us Christians to begin to walk in our new identity instead of our old one. See, I don't, I don't know if you knew this or not, but before Jesus transformed any of our lives, it was absolutely impossible for us not to sin. I don't know if you knew that. It was impossible for us not to sin when we were people of darkness. That's who we were. 
right? We were, we were people of darkness. And not only was it not possible for us not to sin, it really didn't even bother us when we did sin. Like that, that was one of the biggest changes in my life. When I began to walk with Jesus, follow Jesus in my early 20s, two distinct things happened in my life. The first thing is, man, when I began to read the Bible for the very first time in my life, it actually came to life for me. Now, I, I didn't understand all of it, but, but I couldn't get enough of it, man. The, the Bible just went from this book that was previously kind of, kind of boring to me. It was just kind of static dead words on a page. And all of a sudden, it, it kind of transformed overnight. When I began walking with Jesus, he put his spirit inside of me. And his Bible began to give me life, right? It became the life-giving voice of God to me. So that's one thing that happened. The second thing I noticed is I actually began to hate my sin. Like, not, not just dislike my sin a little bit. Like, I actually begin to hate my sin. The stuff that I would do before, and I wouldn't even give it a second thought. Now I would do those things, and I would just have this thing inside of me that would just gnaw at me. Like, I, I, it was impossible for me to enjoy my sin anymore. Like, I would sin, and it would absolutely devastate me. And I look back now, and I realize that's because, man, now, at that point, I had the Holy Spirit for the first time indwelling my life, guiding me, convicting me, calling me to a better way, calling me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's our new identity. And so Peter now is going to move from this new identity that those of us who follow Jesus now have to, hey, this is how you live it out. Yeah, yeah, Jesus saved you. You've got his, his spirit living inside of you. That's all awesome. That's great. But now there's something that you need to do. You need to actually begin to live out this new identity that God has given you as he's taken you from the kingdom of darkness, placed you into the kingdom of light. What Peter is really punching at here is he's, I think he's saying, man, this new identity that Jesus gave us, it's not a passive identity. It's not a, it's not a, a passive identity. It's not like, hey, okay, Jesus saved me, and so now I guess I just get to go I don't know, sit on the couch and veg out on Netflix for the next 50 years until Jesus calls me home. No, our new identity that God gives us is not passive. Our, our new identity, in fact, is, is active. It's, it's living and it's breathing inside of us and it affects the way that we think and the way that we interact with the world around us and the relationships that we have in our lives. It changes everything. I want you to watch this in verse 11. Watch the, the shift that Peter begins to make. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, notice Peter, again, starts with their identity before he ever gets to the first command. And Peter, again, is just hammering home this idea to these suffering Christians, to, to you and me this morning, that we can only live the life that God has for us once we have our identity in him rightly settled. And because of that, Peter starts this section of his letter by calling these Christians beloved. I love that word, beloved. He's reminding these Christians who are marginalized, who are hated for their faith in Jesus. He's, reminded, he's reminding them that ultimately they are dearly loved by God himself. And he also reminds them that not only are they beloved, he says, you guys are also your sojourners and exiles. 
In essence, what Peter is saying here is, listen, you guys are, are loved deeply by God, but I also want to remind you that you don't belong to this world. You don't belong to this world. In fact, he uses the word sojourner. You're, you're a sojourner. You're, you're someone just traveling. You're, you're passing through an area, but this is not your home. Like that word sojourner literally means stranger passing through a foreign land. Like you're, you're just passing through. He's saying don't, don't grow deep roots here. This is, this is not our home. You're loved by God. That's your identity, but you're also a sojourner. You're in exile here. This is not your home. Cheryl and I had the privilege of living in an Asian Muslim majority country for two and a half years before we moved to Asheville about 10 years ago. Um, and we lived in a city of about 4 million people. We were a part of maybe a handful of, of white Americans uh, living in, in that city. And so, as you can imagine, everywhere we went, we stuck out like a sore throne, a, a, a sore thumb. Like, er, everywhere we went, like, people would literally stop in the street just to, just to look at us and wa watch us walk by. I remember when, uh, when our firstborn, Haley, was born. She's, she's 12 now. She's born over there. Um, we, we would go out with her, and people would literally come up to us and ask us if they could hold her and take a picture of her. And so there, apparently there are pictures of Haley when she was a baby all over, scattered over in living rooms in Indonesia, right? But they, they had never seen, most of these people had never seen a blonde-headed, blue-eyed baby before in their entire life. And so I say all that to say, man, we, we did not have to tell people that we weren't from there. And we didn't have to explain to people, like, hey, I know y'all probably think we're from here, but we're actually, we're, we're from somewhere else. Like, we're just so, we didn't have to explain any of that, right? They could tell just by the way that we looked, by the way that we talked, by the way that we walked, by the volume of our conversations. Americans are apparently very, very loud. Everything about us screamed to them that we were not from around those parts, Right? We could no more hide our identity as Americans in a foreign land than your little pet dog at home can hide his identity as a canine. It was impossible, right? Our identity was on full display as sojourners. And we even chose to live um, a way that was, that was foreign to us as sojourners. Listen, we ate, <laughs> we ate more rice over there in a week than most Americans eat in a lifetime. We, we learned how to love spicy food. Well, my, my wife grew up in Africa, so she already, she already loved it. I learned how to love spicy food living over there. We learned how to live without pork as part of our diet, which for me, as a bacon connoisseur and lover, was a real challenge. But it was offensive to our Muslim friends for us to eat pork, so we chose not to eat pork. Listen, our identity as sojourners informed and transformed our actions as strangers in a foreign land. And Peter is saying, listen, that's how it should be for followers of Jesus. Like our, our new identity as his followers, as children of God, as a holy nation, right, all of that should shape our lives in such a way, we should live our lives in such a way that people ought to look at us and say, man, they are, they are distinct and their lives are desirable. There's something different about those people. Not even sure exactly what it is, but there's absolutely something distinct about the way that they live. There's also something that's attractive. There's something that's desirable about their way of life. 
People ought to look at us, fellow Christian, and say, you're not from around here, are you? You ain't from around here. You're not from around these parts, are you? Where are you from? Like you, you, are, you are a little bit strange, but the way that you live your life is actually beautiful. The way that you love your spouse is amazing. The way that you love your kids, the way that you care for your neighbors, the way that you fight for the oppressed. Like, man, I don't know about all this Jesus stuff that you believe. I don't know about all this resurrection stuff about Jesus that you believe. But, man, your life is distinct and it is desirable. And so truth number one that I want us to see together, I think that Peter wants us to see, is this. Christian, you are loved deeply by God, but you are not home yet. That's your identity. Both of those things are simultaneously true about you at the very same time. You are loved by God. That is your identity, but you are a sojourner. A lot of us need to stop acting like this world is our home. This world is not our home. We are passing through. And unless we get both parts of our identity, our life is always going to seem just a little bit off kilter. It's always going to seem just a a little out of sync. It's not going to feel just right. And this is the paradox of being a follower of Jesus. Remember back in chapter 1, Peter calls us, them, Christians, those who love Jesus, follow him. He calls us elect exiles, right? That's an oxymoron. (laughs) Elect, chosen by God, loved by God before the foundations of the world. That's who we are. We are elect, deeply loved, and yet we are exiles. We are marginalized. We are a people without a home, on our way home. That is our paradox. Loved and chosen by God, and yet we are strangers who will suffer in this world. I want you to watch what Peter does. Go back to verse 11. He says, beloved, again, I love that he starts this section with that word. He's reminding them of who they, who they are. Beloved. In other words, Peter's saying, before I tell you anything I want you to do, before I give you the first command, you need to be reminded of who you are in God's sight. And if you just kind of notice the pattern that Peter writes with and Paul and the other New Testament writers, they always start with identity before they start with command. That's important. That sequence, that order is important. They start with identity, they move to action, command, or conduct. So Peter goes, beloved, that's who you are. God loves you. I urge you now as sojourners and exiles. Remember, this is not your home. Don't plant your roots here. Sojourners and exiles. Here's the first thing I want you to do. You gotta start abstaining from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter goes, listen, in light of your new identity, the fact that you are chosen, loved, you have an eternal inheritance in heaven waiting for you, you have a living hope now in this life through Jesus Christ, in light of all of that, here's how you live. Here's how you live. First thing, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And Peter goes, which by the way, lest you think that these things aren't really important, which by the way, these sinful passions, these lusts inside of you, they're waging war against your very soul. Peter's saying, hey, you guys gotta, you gotta remember. You gotta remember that you, you were in darkness. When you were in darkness, man, you did not have the ability to say no to sin, right? Just like cats meow and dogs bark, sinners are gonna sin. That's what they do. That's one reason I think that we should have an, an incredible amount of compassion and patience with those who don't yet believe 
Because the reality is, according to what Peter's saying here, is man, they're just, they're just acting according to their nature. They're acting according to their nature, just like we once did. So for us to try to, try to hold them to some moral standard that they are incapable of ever meeting without the Spirit of God leading them, living inside of them, that makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. In fact, you might could argue that it's even, that would be cruel. But, Peter's saying, for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, and he has given us a new heart, and he's transformed us, and he's put his spirit inside of us. He's opened our eyes. He's saying, listen, we now have the God-given ability, and it's, listen, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with, do with me. I didn't do this. God did it, but we now have, as followers of Jesus, the God-given ability to say no to sin. And we don't always do it, but for the first time in our lives, we have the ability to say no to sin. We have the ability to choose a different life, to walk another path. So Peter, what, is it, what, is that, what does that look like? He's gonna give us two, two ways our conduct should be different. We just went over one of them. Two commands to live out our life in light of our new identity as beloved sojourners, as elect exiles. Two ways you might could say that one person can actually make a difference in the world. Here's, here's the first one. Number one, Christian, follower of Jesus, abstain from sinful passions warring against your soul. Abstain from sinful passions that are waging war against your very soul. See, our distinct identity, our new identity, must lead us as followers of Jesus to a distinct way of life. We've got to remember, listen, we, we belong to a, another kingdom and a better king. And so we resist evil passions because we know that they will not lead for, to God's best for us in our lives. And Peter says this is, this is a war. This is not a trivial thing. We, see, we, we tend to, I think, oftentimes as Christians, we tend to trivialize our own sin. We kind of press it and we kind of toy with it and we kind of act like or think it's not a big deal. And Peter goes, guys, you, this is a war. This is a war for, for your soul. Now, maybe I'm, I'm the only one. Maybe you guys um, haven't had this experience. But, man, have you noticed that even after you give your life to Christ, you begin to follow him, there's still this inner turmoil and struggle with sin. All right, have you noticed that? Like, like, it doesn't just go away and disappear completely the day that you surrender your life to Jesus and you, you start following him, you start reading his word and praying, he puts his spirit inside of you, starts convicting you of sin. All that. Like, my struggle with sin didn't just die. Even after he redeemed me, after he put his spirit inside of me. No, when that happens, you actually get a, a war. You get a war on your hands, right? Because before God saved you, there was no war. You were just a slave to sin. There was no battle. There was no struggle. But now, every single day is a battle. Listen, I, I wake up many days just to, just to be transparent with you with, with some of the things that I, I struggle with. Um, I, I love unhealthy food. Um, I, I do. I, I, love, I love pizza. Um, I love burgers. I love cheeseburgers that have bacon on them. And I love, I love French fries. Listen, uh, the, the waffle fries at Chick-fil-A, I could eat like 17 sleeves of those in, in one sitting, especially if I've got a bucket of the, the Chick-fil-A sauce right there. I, I, lo I just, I love stuff that I know is not, is not healthy for me. 
And I'm just telling you, man, I, I wake up a, a lot of days and, and I have this thing in mind. Where I'm like, man, I'm going to be disciplined today. I'm going to be disciplined today. I'm going I'm to skip breakfast. I'm going uh, to have a salad for lunch. And I'm driving home and I'm thinking, like, man, I'm killing it today. I'm going to get home and I'm going to eat uh, some celery and a handful of kale or something like that. And I'll get home and Cheryl has like a New York style pizza laying out or something like that. And all of that goes out the window. And 13 pieces later, I'm thinking to myself, why am I such a loser? Why am I such a loser? Man, I did so well all day long, and then all of a sudden I, I blew it, man. I'm like, I know gluttony is wrong. I know it's bad for my body. I know it's a sin. But listen, when that pizza is sitting in front of me calling my name, are those waffle fries from Chick-fil-A or are sitting there calling my name? There is a battle in my flesh that is waging war against my soul. And I'm just telling you, I'm shocked I'm shocked at how often it is so hard to obey. Shocked at how hard it is to obey, but I shouldn't be. Paul, the uh, dude who hated Christians, persecuted Christians until he met Jesus and became a Christian and ended up writing like most of the New Testament, he wrote in uh, Romans, a letter to the Romans in chapter seven. He basically, and this is to me one of the most encouraging passages in all of scripture. Paul, the apostle Paul writes, man, why, why is it that the things I want to do, I don't do. And yet the things that I, I don't want to do, the things that I hate, are the things that I keep on doing. And I read Romans chapter 7, I'm like, yes, Paul, I can relate to that. I know what you're talking about, man. I, I feel you in that. So I just, I want you, I want to read some of Romans chapter 7 where Paul is talking about it. This will be, don't go there, this will be on the screens for you. Paul says this, for I do not understand my own actions. I don't know why I ate all those waffle fries. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not, do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me, or my, my flesh, my body. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And how true is that? When I want to do what is right, evil is just right there, just whispering in my ear, just tempting me to come over here on the, the other side, to step out of the kingdom of light into a moment of darkness, verse 22, for I delight, Paul says, in the law of God in my inner being. My soul wants to do the right thing, he says, but I see in my members or my, my body, my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind, my spirit, making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members or my body. Verse 24, Paul says, wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death and then the tone begins to change as he moves into verse 25. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul, man, one of the giants of the early church movement, he goes, ah, man, I've got this, I've got this war raging inside of me. I've got this new identity that wants to obey God on the, on the one hand, but on the other hand, I, I have this flesh and it still craves all kinds of sin like gluttony and drunkenness and sexual satisfaction outside of the, the bounds of marriage or envy or anger or gossip. And Paul goes, is there any hope for someone like me? 
Is there any hope for somebody like me? Can you hear the, the pain in Paul's voice as he pins this letter to the Romans? But then there's a shift in verse 25, and it's almost like we can see Paul begin to smile as he writes verse 25, and he goes right back to the gospel, and he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what he's saying, Paul is saying, listen, I can't do it. I can't, in my flesh, I cannot do it. I do not have the willpower to not eat 17 sleeves of waffle fries drenched in Chick-fil-A sauce every single day. I don't have the willpower myself not to do that. Listen, I am, I'm convinced when we get to heaven, there are gonna be bathtubs full of Chick-fil-A sauce as soon as we walk in. We're gonna walk into Pearly Gates. Peter's gonna high five us. Big old tub of Chick-fil-A sauce. Waffle fries just poof, right in there. We're gonna, eat it. It's going to be glorious, and it's not going to harm our bodies, and it's, it's going to be incredible. But Paul says, I don't have the power in my flesh, I don't have the willpower not to sin like that. But then Paul says, you know who does? Jesus does. Jesus does. And I belong to him. And so whenever I fall, I look to the cross, Paul says. Whenever I fall, I look to the cross and I get back up. And over time, what we begin to see is that those sin patterns slowly begin to lose their grips on our lives. And so even when I stumble, even when I fall, when I fail as a follower of Christ, man, I don't have to beat myself up anymore. Because here's the reality. The gospel is not about my performance. It's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about Jesus' performance that is now applied to me. See, that's the great news about the gospel, man. That's what we call the great exchange that on the cross, Jesus took all of my filth, he took all of my disgusting sin, and in exchange, he gave me his righteousness. And so what Jesus does is he, he takes my report card of life, which by the way, my report, I don't know about you, my report card is full of Fs. I'm a, in my own strength, I'm a failure in almost every single way. And he takes my report card full of nothing but F's and he nails it to the cross and he gives me his report card full of nothing but A pluses. And so as a follower of Jesus, when I stand before the Father on that judgment day, on that last day, I'm not holding my report card. I'm holding Jesus' report card, which gives me complete freedom now in this life to pursue him all the more and to continue waging war against my sin and my flesh and against my enemy. And listen, church family, we do have a real enemy. We have a real enemy in this game called life. And his primary purpose in this world right now, follower of Christ, is to destroy you and convince you that you are a complete failure. See that little voice that you hear in your head every time you sin? Man, you're such a loser. You're such a loser. You never change. You call yourself a Christian and you're, you're still doing this. 10 years later, God, God can't change you. Look how, look how sinful you are. Look how wicked you are. If people really knew the real you and what you struggle, everybody would be disgusted with you. God doesn't love you. How could God love someone like you? You're probably not even a Christian. See, our, our enemy tries to distort our primary identity, our new identity, because he knows if he can distort our identity, he can affect everything else in our lives. He can affect our thought patterns, and he can affect our behaviors and our conduct and how we live out our lives. 
One of the things I'm constantly trying to convince my kids of is that there is absolutely nothing they could ever do that would make me love them one ounce less than I already love them. And I don't think they really get that yet. And why, why, why is that? Why would I love somebody without condition like that? And it's one reason, and really only one reason. It's because they're my kids. <laughs> they're my kids. I don't love your kids that way, but I love, I love my kids that way. That's, listen, that is their identity. There's, there's nothing that they could ever do or not do that would ever change their identity and their status as my son or my daughters. And so I just, even when they get in trouble, I just, I just want to say to them, like, you, listen, you have no idea how much I love you. you have no, you're outside riding your bikes, and you don't, know, you don't know this, but I stand at the window, and I just watch you. I just smile, big goofy grin, just watching you ride your bike. I come stand in your room in the middle of the night, and I just, I watch you sleep. I just want to make sure you're still breathing. I just want to make sure you don't have a pillow like getting close to your nose. I, it's kind of creepy how much I love you, but I, I, I love, there's nothing you could ever do that could ever make me love you even one ounce less than I already love you. And Peter's like, yeah, yes, Christian, follower of Jesus, your identity is, is it's like that. It's secure. Now, his love for you, Christian, is probably not as creepy as Chris's love for his kids, but listen, it's no less secure. So so Peter's saying, now go and live out that identity in freedom. And when you stumble and fall, and listen, you will stumble and fall, so what? Welcome to the club. Get up, dust yourself off, pray, repent, eyes back on Jesus, and you keep waging war against that sin in your life. By the way, church, if you begin to live this life like you really are battling sin, you're trying to abstain from the the sins, the passions that are at war inside of you, if you begin to live that life, it absolutely will make you an exile in this culture. Right, Young, young single person, high school student, college student, young single, professional, the fact that you choose not to sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, that will make you weird to your friends. That will make you an exile. That will make you a sojourn. Like, that's weird. That's strange. The fact that you don't get hammered on Friday, you don't get wasted on Friday night when you go to party with your friend, that's gonna make you strange in their eyes. Right, when you don't fudge on your income taxes, that's gonna make you weird to your your colleagues at work. When you refuse to participate in in jokes with, with racial overtones, Some will marginalize you for that. When you choose not to gossip with your friends, when they get together and they start slandering somebody behind their back, it's gonna make you look weird. Peter's like, yeah, it will. But do it anyway. Because that's our new identity. We are weird. We are weird. We're supposed to be weird. We're, We're sojourners. Because this is not our home. So stop trying to plant your roots here. This is not where you belong. Start living out your identity. You are a beloved sojourner. You are an elect exile. You are a beloved weirdo. And that's okay. Embrace it. Live it out. Why, Peter? Why, why should we do that? Why, why should we live that way? Here's why. Look at verse 12. We're almost done. He says, keep your conduct, Christians, 
among the Gentiles or, or the unbelievers. Keep your conduct among the unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds glorify God on the day of visitation. So remember, the first thing Peter said we should do in light of our new identity is to abstain from sin. Now here's the second part. Here's the second part of what he's saying. He says, I want you to abstain from sin, but I also want you to do good in the world. Why? Peter says, so that they, those who don't yet believe, will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And I believe Peter's talking about their salvation when he says the day of visitation here. Peter's saying, listen, we, 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 should, we should adopt a way of life that is noticeably good to those watching us. Like people should see our lives as followers of Jesus and they should see visible good deeds that make us distinct from the culture and the world around us. In fact, so much so, Peter says, that when people speak evil against us, others would say, no, 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 no. Now, you're, you're wrong. That's not who they are. I've, I've seen these Christians. I know these Christians. They live beautiful and good lives. In church, don't we live in a society where the narrative is that, man, Christians are hate-filled, narrow-minded, self-righteous, holier-than-thou, judgmental, hateful people, right? That's, that's kind of the narrative that's, that's been spun, and some of that is our own doing. But how do, we, how do we change that narrative in our culture? Peter says, live an honorable life among unbelievers. Do good deeds that silence the critics. You may not know this, but recently our, our elders gave every single community group in our church $1,000. Every community group got $1,000 to bless those outside of our faith family. And so we're, we're starting to get some stories trickling about how that money is, is being used um, in, our, in our society, in our, in our city. And uh, just, just it's kind of cool. Got, a, got an email uh, this week. One of our groups decided to use their $1,000 to feed homeless, to feed the homeless in Asheville. And somebody in that group decided that they were gonna, they were gonna invite their neighbors in their neighborhood. I got like a neighborhood chat or a Facebook page or something like that. And so they, they just invited their neighbors, most of whom are not church people, not believers, uh, to come and help them feed homeless people. There were a ton of people in that neighborhood who signed up, get this, to come out and help our church feed homeless people in Asheville. Peter says, live honorable lives among the Gentiles so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This reminds me of the story of Rosaria uh, Butterfield, it, you, some of y'all might be familiar with her. If not, you can, you can YouTube her, Rosaria Butterfield. Um, she, for most of her life, was, was not only not a Christian, but she hated Christians. She, she absolutely detested everything that Christians stood for. She one day was befriended by a pastor and his family, and they just, they just loved her. They didn't judge her for her lifestyle. They didn't, they didn't condemn her. Yes, they spoke truth to her and into her life, but most of all, they just loved her. They loved her. They served her. She was at their dinner table regularly. They did good deeds for her. They lived honorable lives in front of her. She later came to faith in Christ. Now she's an author and a Christian speaker all over the world. How, how did that happen? Was she convinced by a great sermon on Sunday morning? 
Was she, was she moved to follow Jesus from a, from a moving worship service and great songs? Was she, was she moved to, to come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light because she saw Christians railing on morality issues on social media? That's what convinced her. That just kind of pushed her over the edge. No. She saw one single family who claimed to love Jesus and they actually lived it out. And she was never the same. I love this, this quote from an old Scottish pastor named Alexander McLaren. This is what McLaren says. He says, the world takes its notions of God from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us, they only hear about Jesus Christ. Church, what if, what if your life is the only gospel that someone ever gets to see? What if your life, the way you live your life, abstaining from sin, doing good to others in the name of Jesus, what if that is the only gospel they will ever see in this life because they are not gonna ever step foot in a door like this one, in a church like this one? Friend, what if, what if by your life you could be a part of someone stepping out of the kingdom of darkness and death into the kingdom of light and life and love forever? Church, listen to me. How we live our lives as Christians matters. How we fight the sin that seems to so easily entangle us, how we fight that sin, how we abstain from it, it actually matters. There are eternal ramifications of how we live our lives. How we leverage our time and our resources in this world, which is not our home because we are sojourners. How we live our lives. Do good, do good deeds in the name of Jesus. All of that matters. Mahatma Gandhi, uh, one of the most famous, probably the most famous Hindu leader, he, went, he once said this, and this is, this is chilling. We're, we'll close with this. He says, I like your Christ. He knew, he knew several Christians. Gandhi said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That is chilling, beloved. That's heartbreaking. We've got to learn that our lives either turn people towards Jesus or drive people away from the cross. Now, this is, this is a silly example, but I, I worked for a summer as a waiter in a, in a restaurant before Cheryl and I got married. Do you know the one time that servers hate to work the most every single week? Sunday afternoon. You know why? Because that's when all the Christians come in after church. And they either leave a garbage tip, or even worse, they leave a tract, a dumb tract, instead of leaving a tip. And I've always just kind of wondered in the back of my mind, what, what if Christians became the most generous people in the, whole, in the whole city? What if we became the most generous people, the most caring people, the most loving people? What if servers and restaurants began to fight over the Sunday afternoon slot? Because they knew that's when the Christians were coming. And they knew that's when they were gonna get blessed and loved on. Man, that is one silly example of what I think Peter is talking about here. But what if we started living our lives 
in every area of our lives like this. Could you imagine the transformation that would happen in our city? Could you imagine how the, the narrative of Christians would begin to shift in our culture? People would just be like, man, I, again, I don't know about all that stuff that the Christians believe. They believe some crazy things, but man, they are lovely people. Man, they do good. They are kind. They are generous. They are caring. They are always giving of themselves. They're always serving us. Let's go back to the question that we started with. How can one person make a difference in this chaotic crazy world. Peter says, resist the sin that's waging war against your soul and do good in this world in the name of Jesus. That's how you do it. Now, listen, I want to finish with this. There's a story in uh, the New Testament. It's a really, really famous story called the prodigal son, and uh, many of you are familiar with it, right? And so there's a son who, who gets his inheritance from his father, and he goes off, he travels off to a distant, distant land, and he he blows all of his money, all of his inheritance on reckless living, right? Partying, prostitutes, the, the whole nine yards. And over time, he, he, he burns through all of his money. And so he's impoverished and he's wasted all of his father's inheritance. And he he's, finds himself, he's working on this, on this pig farm. There's a famine and he's so hungry. He's, he's sitting there and he wants to eat the pig slop. He's starving to death, literally. And he has this moment of clarity. And I'm praying that some of you watching this right now, you, right now would be your moment of clarity. But he's, hit, he's there, he left his father's house, blew everything, he's living with pigs, he's starving to death, and he has this moment of clarity and he goes, what am I doing? What the heck am I doing? Like, my father has a mansion and he loves me. And even his servants eat like kings and they're treated well and I'm sitting here eating pig slop. What am I doing? And so he gets up and he, he grabs the stuff and he heads home and he, he's playing in his mind. He's gonna get back and he's gonna say to his father, I'm not worthy to be your son, just make me your servant, God. And so he's got this plan and, and as he's afar, he's still a long way off, his dad spots him and he sees him coming back and his father takes off in a full sprint towards his son. And he gets to his son and his son starts, starts his little spill like, dad, I'm not worthy to be your son, just make me a servant. He's like, shut up. And he hugs him and he kisses him. He's like, man, bring a robe and bring sandals, bring a gold ring, kill the fattened calf. We're gonna throw a party because my son who is dead is now alive again. And some of you who are watching this right now, man, you are in a distant land. You are in a distant land. And you have never come home to the father because you don't yet know the father but he knows you. He knows you, he created you, he loves you, and it's time for you to come home for the very first time and meet your dad and to start your journey with God through Jesus. Now for others of you, man, you're in a distant land and you know better. You know better because you're, you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus and yet you're living in a way, right now, you're living in a way that is contrary to your new identity in Jesus. And this is what I can tell you. If that's you, this is what I can tell you about where you are right now. You are, you are absolutely miserable. You are miserable. It's been said that the most miserable person on earth is a Christian stuck in sin because you are living in a way that betrays your very core identity. And so you're miserable inside, man. You can't even enjoy your sin because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you and he's convicting you and there's this gnawing feeling and he's, he's drawing you back to the home of your father. So I just wanna say in closing, whether you need to come home 
to your father for the very first time, non-believer, if you're not a Christian, whether you need to come home for the very first time or whether you need to come back home Christian, I want to encourage you, do that today. Do it today. Jesus is worth it. Now, sin, sin is enticing, but sin is a liar. Only Jesus satisfies. Let's pray. Father, Father, would you help us as your children find the path of obedient joy? There is joy and obedience in your kingdom, God. We don't think that's true, but it is true. So would you help us find that path of obedient joy? God, would you help us to live out our identity as beloved sojourners, elect exiles, people in this world, engaging this world, but not people of this world. This is not our home. God, teach us not to plant our roots deeply here. We're just passing through on our way home. So God, would you help us abstain from the sinful patterns, passions of our flesh that just wage war against our souls, God? Would you help us to live a life of good deeds in this world so that others might see you, find you, and glorify you? We ask, we pray these things. Beautiful name of your son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.